Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking at two different passages today because that's what we need to do. So you can turn either in your worship guide or turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and keep a finger there, and then we're going to flip over and also look at Acts chapter 20. And if you are able, I ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." And continuing in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he went, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself." If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my, to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, but they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We continue to focus in the 
context of our current sermon series on mission, on God's mission in this world and what it means for us today, that God has been a God who who engages himself in mission uh, from the beginning, from the fall, he sets himself to redeem his people and his creation. And Jesus is the agent of that mission. He comes to die and to be resurrected so that we might be rescued. And we have been called to participate in that mission. We could describe that mission in a number of ways, but one of the points of this sermon series is to recognize that sometimes we we uh, reduce participating in God's mission. We think of it as, oh, speaking a little bit about Jesus or not engaging overtly in sin. And we say, oh, I'm participating in God's mission. And that's not the point at all. The point of this sermon series is to say, no, God's mission is much, much bigger than that. And if we understand its call, it involves much more of our life, really it involves all of our life. And if we participate in it, then we know what it is to be God's. We know what it is to be made new in the likeness of Christ. And so we've described that mission. We've summarized it for us here in our own mission statement at Trinity Harbor as our mission is to be transformed by God's grace. Heal the broken, growing community, and establish churches that extend God's kingdom. And so last week and this week, we're focusing on, on the last clause of that mission statement, which is to establish churches that extend God's kingdom. And last week, we looked at a negative example of that, which was Jonah. But this week, we're looking at a good, a positive example of what it means to establish churches uh, that est- extend God's kingdom. Yeah, a bit of biography. The church is one of the things that I am most passionate about. By far and away, it is probably the thing that I am most passionate about. I grew up in the church, and the church was a place that formed me dramatically. And I went away to college and got very involved in a a ministry and decided that I was going to spend my life teaching and would change the lives of children for years to come. And so I went to college and came out teaching high school history and began to do that. And the first year was incredibly difficult. Uh, I was in a small agrarian economy in upstate New York, and most kids knew that they were not going to college, and most kids had finished their core requirements by their sophomore year, and I had them their junior year, and they were very ready to be gone. But they were required, even though they were done with their math, and they were done with their English, and they were done with science, they were required to take American history. Well, they didn't want to be there, and I spent a year fighting with kids and babysitting and trying them to get them to do anything, and they, it just wasn't important to them. But one of the things that happened during that year is, you know, I became a teacher in part because I wanted to participate in lives changing. And I realized that year two things. The teaching, while it's outstandingly important, will always be limited because the contact with the family as a whole is limited. You're only really working with one individual, a child of that family, And so if you might have a great 45 minutes that day with the child, but then the child is released to a very destructive or dysfunctional home, a lot of change isn't going to happen. And the other thing that I realized that year was I really can't change anyone. Only Jesus can change people. And it was out of that that year of teaching and a number of other things that were coming, that were happening, uh, that I started to move towards seminary because I said, oh, the real place where change occurs The most important institution on the face of the earth is the church. It is that for which Christ died. It is his bride that he has brought into being. And it is that bride and that bride alone that he is making beautiful. And so from that time forward, really, I said, for the rest of my life, the church is going to be the place where I labor. Because I believe very firmly 
that the church is plan A of the extension of God's kingdom. And there really isn't a plan B. The church is the place that only brings together diverse aspects of God's word and in terms of it happening in God's family. That doesn't happen anywhere else. I'm going to make that case to you towards as we round out the sermon. But what I want you to hear me saying at the very beginning is I think the church is the most important aspect of God's kingdom effort in this world until Jesus returns. Therefore, if the church becomes negotiable in our society, that's bad news for us. And indeed, that's what's happening, is it not? The church has become hugely negotiable in American society. If You probably realize that at some level, but just to communicate to to you clearly, the Pew Research Center has recently spent a lot of time looking at what are now called nuns, all right? not N-U-N-S, like black habit-wearing women, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. And they're called that because if you ask them on a survey what is their religious affiliation, they mark the box that says none. This has been on a dramatic rise since the 1950s. In 1952, 2% of responders identified themselves without religious affiliation, but in 2010, 16% identify themselves as without religious affiliation. Now, what's interesting about this group is that they they might be consider themselves rather spiritual. They may even pray every day. But they are not participating nor care to in any religious institution. Even more surprising is this, that in 2012, 32% or one-third of Americans under 30 identified themselves as having any religious affiliation. So not only are nuns growing, they're growing the fastest, the most noticeably, amongst younger generations, 18 to 29, within American society. And if that was not enough, if we were to take back up from the nuns and to take a look at American society as a whole, what would we see? Well, there was a really a couple of fantastic studies done because they just showed you how dangerous statistics can be in general. But if you looked at most surveys up even until 2000, they would say that roughly 40% of the nation is in church on any given Sunday. And a couple of very astute researchers said, that just doesn't seem right. And so they, they, they picked particular demographics where they could actually ask the question in the context of a survey, and they asked people to identify their place of worship, and then they started showing up to see if the people were actually there. And as a result of this study, you know what they realized? Lots of people lie on a survey. (laughs) And it wasn't 40%. Most researchers now would peg it around 20%. What does that mean? That means on any given Sunday, 80% of Americans are finding something other to do than go to church. Right? In the last 70 years, from 1950 to the present, we're talking about a remarkable, radical shift in American Christianity. It's, It's seismic, really. And so if we want to say that the church is important, but we, we look at these statistics, and, and the lowest estimates are that four to 7,000 churches in America close every year. Higher estimates go as high as 10,000. You know, I'll think of churches that have been converted into apartments or simply abandoned or sold for some other purpose. Right? The church is plan A in the establishment of God's kingdom, and this is a bleak picture. This is something that we have to wrestle with. And if we're going to argue that the church is plan A of God's kingdom, of, it, of establishing his kingdom, then we have to uh, understand a little bit, at least, why is this occurring? Right? 
It's one thing to observe some phenomenon. Why are so many people walking away from the church? Why is the church suddenly so negotiable? Well, as you can imagine, there are no shortage of opinions in answer to this question. There's one humorous list that has circulated for a number of years. This list is entitled, 12 Reasons Why a Pastor Quit Attending Sports Events. I'm pretty sure that this was probably written by a jaded pastor, but you're going to get the idea of the commentary as I read to you a few of them. All right, 12 reasons why a pastor quit attending sports events. Number one, the coach never came to visit me. Number two, the people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. Number three, the referees made a decision I didn't agree with. Number four, I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see what others were wearing. Number five, the band played songs I had never heard before. Number six, the games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. Number seven, since I read a book on sports, I feel that I know more than the coaches anyway. Funny, yes, striking close to home perhaps in some ways, but at least raises the notion that one of the main reasons that people are walking away from church is church is not offering to them what they want what they think or expect should happen in church or what they should receive from church. If we were to probe a little bit deeper, let's ask some of the experts why people aren't going to church anymore. If we were to ask Robert Putnam, who's a rather famous uh, academic of such issues, he teaches at Harvard University, one of the points that he makes is that this isn't just true of the church. He writes, they're the same people, talking particularly about these young generation, 18 to 29, They're the same people who are also not joining the Elks Club or the Rotary Club. I don't mean to be casting that as a critique of them, but this same younger generation is much less involved in many of the main institutions of our society than previous younger generations were. Putnam doesn't really give an answer to why it's happening. He's saying, listen, this isn't just a church problem. All institutions that that are cultural are suffering because younger people simply don't want to be part of an institution. Another take, a number of very notable Christian sociologists blame the walking away from the church on the past decades of our culture's youth ministry. It's actually pretty interesting. If you go back to late 60s, early 70s, no one had ever heard of a youth pastor. Right? What, what is that? Churches, because part they wanted perhaps to compete, with what was going on culturally, in part because they wanted to have something that drew families into their church, started to pour tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars into youth ministry. Uh, beginning late 70s and early 80s, and you saw positions created and wings built, right? What happened to youth ministry? It was pretty awesome, right? Rock walls and ski trips and lock-ins and video games. It was a lot of fun. What the sociologists say is, well, you essentially packaged Christianity in a package that has very little to do with Christianity. And so the, the youth who grew up in that kind of program graduated and went to college, and maybe they experienced some of that in a college ministry, and then they graduated into the real world. You know, suddenly all of Christianity that had been experienced by them was hanging out with their friends and doing really fun things and having lots of money invested in their entertainment. And then they entered real life, and they didn't experience any of that. There were lots of people in the church that they didn't like. No one was spending a lot of money to entertain them. And Christianity ceased to be what they had known, and hence you have generations walking away from the church. 
There's a second insight into what is happening. To come at it from a different angle, Todd Bolsinger is a minister out in California who wrote a book that I like quite a bit. You may remember Hillary Clinton uh, making the phrase famous, uh, takes a village to raise a child, which was actually an African proverb long before she employed that phrase. And Todd Bolsinger twisted it a little bit in the title of his book, and he said, it takes a church to raise a Christian. And I like that phrase a lot. It communicates a great deal of truth. But in the midst of Bolsinger's book, he makes this observation. He's ministering in California, and he hears a lot. I just worship God better on the beach with my family than in a pew with church people. And Bolsinger makes the most insightful comment. You know, he hears people saying this, and he says, I get what they're saying, but they don't understand. they've made a terrible, terrible mistake that will forever frustrate them until they get it straightened out. He said, when you think about something that moves you, whether it be a, a mountain in Colorado or the beach or uh, the smell of, of cut grass on a, a golf green, you know, something that makes you pause, nature, and, and it inspires you. This is Bolsinger's point. He says, inspiration is not the same as worship. Inspiration is something you experience, but if you don't take that and actively and intentionally labor to bring God glory and praise as a result of the inspiration you've received, then all you're doing is being inspired and it has nothing to do with worship. And how many of us in the church have coming in and we, we aren't coming in to worship, we're expecting to be inspired. And if we're not inspired, we walk away. But the church, friends, I'm not here for your inspiration per se. We're here to create a place where God's people can come together and worship. And that is the proper response that, to God's inspiration, which he provides to us all throughout the week. Lastly, <clears throat> you may argue, well, I'm very serious about your faith. You're very serious about your faith and your Bible. And you take church pretty seriously. But there's another way that sometimes we really kind of put the church a little bit on the side, and we do it under the cloak of righteousness. And a joke kind of gets at the nature of of what we do. There was a young Jewish couple who had their first child, and they went to the rabbi and said, Rabbi, we're very excited about our first child feel very blessed. We're very intent on raising our child according to the will of God. So how do we know what God's will is for our child? And the rabbi said, I'm so impressed. I'm glad to participate in this with you. Listen, this is what you need to do. You need to clear out a room. In that room, you have one table. And on that table, you put three things. A bottle of scotch whiskey, a roll of dollar bills, and the scriptures. The couple was like, okay. But he could, the rabbi saw that they looked puzzled. The rabbi said, listen, if your child goes in and drinks the scotch whiskey, he's going to grow up to be a drunk. If your child goes in and takes the money, he's going to grow up and enter into business. If he grows up, or if he goes in and he looks, takes the scriptures, he's going to grow up to be a rabbi. So the couple says, okay, we're ready for this leading. They went home, they cleared a room, they set these things on the table. And the next day they came back hurriedly to the rabbi. They said, rabbi, we, are, we need your help. We're so confused. We don't know what to do. We, we did exactly as you said. We set up the table. We put the three things. Our child walked in. And he walked in and he immediately took a long slug of whiskey. 
And then he took all of the money and stuffed it in his pocket. And then he sat down and started reading the scriptures, and he's been reading the scriptures since then. And the rabbi says, oh, I'm sorry, I have very, very bad news for you. Your son is going to grow up to be a Presbyterian. <laughs> now, the reason I like that joke is it points up a couple of features that are... Right? Presbyterians are sometimes accused of being morally lax, or sometimes accused of being worldly. But typically, most people recognize that we are pretty serious about the Word. We take our, our Bibles very, fairly seriously. Now, that's great and is a strength to be honored, but at the same time, is it enough? Is it enough for you, in and of yourself, to be intimate with your Bible? Now, we live in an age of unprecedented access to good teaching and all kinds of books. You can read and download lectures and listen to teaching series. You can get sermons from all over the world, from the best preachers in the world. You can fill your head over and over and over again with biblical knowledge. But if that becomes something by which you say, oh, I'll keep the church, my family at arm's length, then it's something that is not helping you. It's something that's hindering your sanctification. Because it's in this family where sanctification occurs. Now, we spent some time, and I think it's important to do so, considering why people are walking away from the church today. But I still have to make the case to you that the church is plan A in God's extension of the kingdom. And to do that, let's consider the scriptures that are before us. First, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. There's probably no more succinct statement of God's mission in this world and our participation in it as the Great Commission, which is here. And the thing I want to point up to you, which is remarkable, and still I marvel at in somewhat in frustration to this day, is what Jesus is saying in the Great Commission. He's saying, I did it. I won. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have been successful. Now, what do you expect to hear after that? Right? Jesus has just been crucified, brutally beaten and murdered by those who oppose him. If I'm writing this story, Jesus comes out and it's go time and beams of light come out of his eyes and his mouth and incinerate all those who have opposed him. And the church continues forward in bliss, unhindered. Sin and death are done away. Let's do away with them permanently. Let's move on to the next chapter. And in one of the most surprising turns in the history of the world, Jesus says, I'm sending you to carry out my work, and I'm leaving. You know, frankly, to this, I don't like that. It could have been so much more easy, but maybe that's just the point. That in ways that we cannot possibly understand, by, by engaging the great privilege of participating in God's mission, we are transformed in ways that couldn't be done otherwise. By walking in the footsteps of our Lord and participating in the extension of his kingdom. And that is the first point here, that out of the Great Commission, we see, we see Jesus instructing his disciples, saying, you are to go forward and to do my work. You're going to go into all the world. You're going to proclaim my story. You're going to baptize the nations into my name, and hence my people will grow. Okay. Well, how? We put on... You know, it doesn't really say anything about how. We don't know. Should, should we hand out tracts? Should we give prizes away? 
for people who want to consider Jesus? Should we offer a vacation for those who want to come and hear the gospel? How do we go about actually making disciples? We tell the story, we baptize, yes, but there are a lot of open-ended questions left, and we have to move forward in the story. That's why we're including a passage from Acts about Paul and the church of Ephesus. Let's see how this really played out. What was God's intent in the Great Commission as we look at Paul in the church of Ephesus? And here, let's make a few observations. Paul probably spent about three years in Ephesus. He arrives there, he begins like he does in most cities. He goes to the synagogue, and in chapter 19 we read that he's proclaiming the gospel, and some are converting, but some of the Jews oppose him. And so they eventually drive him out of the synagogue, and he has to retreat to find a new place to teach. So he lands in the hall of Tyrannus, which is a lecturer's hall, and either was made famous by a teacher named Tyrannus or was owned by Tyrannus, we're not sure which, but that's where he sets up shop. And because it would have been uh, occupied and rented by more prominent people in the best teaching hours, which were the morning, this is how Paul's day probably went for roughly three years. He would get up and he would go to work all morning as a tent maker. And whatever aspect of tent making he did, that was his profession. That's how he made a living. So he would go and he would do that so he could provide for himself and help the weak and the poor, as he says in our passage. And then at the siesta of the Mediterranean world, he would go and he would teach in, in the hall of Tyrannus. He would proclaim the story of Jesus. And people would be converted there and would be giving up their own siesta. You know, it's interesting. One historian said in the Mediterranean world, in ancient times, more people would be asleep at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m. It was you crashed. It's kind of like what I've not been to Spain, but I hear Spain's very much like that. And you stay up late, and part of that is because of the heat of the day, avoiding laboring at that time. And so Paul would have taught, and then he would have gone back to work, and then he would have gone back to bed. Not a particular glamorous life. This is how he ministers to the people in Ephesus. Look at how he's about to leave. The Spirit is moving him on, and after three years, he's, there's a community of faith, a church that's been created. And this is what he says in parting to the church. Look at verse 18. You yourselves know how I have lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And he proceeds to remind all of the people that they know that he has served them with all humility and with tears and with trials, and they are well aware of all of this. Now, how could that be the case? How could they know that Paul had experienced tears and trials and had served them with all humility? That's a pretty bold claim. The only way that Paul could make that claim with any legitimacy is if the people actually intimately knew him in his life. That he had lived amongst them in a vulnerable way. And done his ministry without any... Here's my life. It's laid out before you. I'm pouring it out for you. We see that even for Paul, personal holiness requires being known. You know, he's trying to model for the people because he's going to say to the overseers, the people he's putting in charge of the church... Do as I have done. And he's modeling for them what it means to be committed to personal holiness is that I live my life open and I too am accountable to you. And it's one of the features of the church that we desperately need to be held accountable to one another. That there has to be boundaries. We can't say, I love Jesus and come in and do whatever we want and not be spoken to. You know, I cannot tell you the times where over the years, whether it be high school or college or living in New York City or being in the church in Philadelphia during seminary, when, and here, 
when someone comes to me and says, you know, Ryan, I'm a little bit concerned about this. Can we talk? And out of love, a person comes to me and says, we need to discuss something. I'm a little bit worried about something. And if it were not for the people who had loved me in that way and come into my life and spoken to me, who knows what may have been allowed to continue or where I would have been, where I would have gone more errant. It's the accountability that intrinsically exists in the family that is the church that is essential for us to grow in holiness and participate in God's agenda. Secondly, notice Paul's commitment to the word preached. In verse 26, Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul considers his faithful telling of the story of Jesus to be of paramount importance for his ministry in Ephesus. He has not shrunk back from it to the point where he says, I'm innocent of your blood, which just as an aside, raises an interesting question for us. If we are not faithful to proclaim the story of Jesus to those around us, do we share some guilt in their blood if they do not repent? Paul is faithful not to tell uh, his own story, but his own story as it falls into the story of Jesus. What we see in this passage, in, in this verse of is the narrative of Jesus, the story of Jesus, understand, uh, uh, informs all of Paul's story. And it informs the story of the church. And that's the second thing you need to understand about the church, is the church is the family that lives together by the one true narrative in the history of the world. All of our stories are informed by that story of Jesus. And that's the second thing that makes the church unique. Number three, Paul's story, in similar fashion, is not his own. In verse 24, Paul states, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, Paul says, my life means nothing except that it is communicating and revealing to others the story of Jesus. The narrative of the church is the story of Jesus. Notice Paul's ongoing commitment to the flock. He's appointed people of respect, men who will watch over. And he says to those men, listen, I'm leaving. You're not going to see me again. Two things are going to happen. Wolves are going to come. And they're going to seek to devour the people in this family. And men are going to rise up in the midst of our community. And they're going to teach nonsense. And they're going to lead people astray. And you are responsible to hold the gate. He says, just as I have admonished all of you, without ceasing, you are to admonish each other. So Paul is intent. He knows that the overseers must execute oversight, accountability for the church. That its holiness might be promoted. That it might be guarded. You know, it's interesting that even in this passage, this little section of Acts, which talks about Ephesus, raises for us the question that was raised in the Reformation, which was, what is a real church? The Reformation that's occurring in the 1500s was a reform movement. It begins first and foremost because the church had become very corrupt. And so the reformers are seeking to create a new church that lacks the corruption of the church in existence. And so to do that, they have to ask, okay, what is it, what is really important? How do we understand what is a true church and what is a false church? Have you ever asked that question in visiting a church or in 
considering leaving a church? What is non-negotiable? The Reformers came up with three answers. Number one was the preaching of the Word. Number two was the administration of the sacraments. Number three was discipline. Since if you lack any of those three elements, you're not a true church. And in this passage, we see Paul utterly committed to the preaching of the Word and ensuring that it will continue on after he leaves. We see him administering the sacraments. Most of the baptisms that are mentioned happened in 19, just before the passage we read. But as people are coming to Jesus, Paul carries out the commission that Jesus has given, baptizing them into Jesus. And the third element, discipline, he says, listen, I have not, a day hasn't gone by when I have not admonished you. And as I'm leaving, you are responsible, overseers, for admonishing the flock. And this is what ensures that a family moves forward. You know, what's beautiful about this time is while Paul is in Ephesus, people are converting, the church is growing, Epaphras is going to be sent out, and probably it's during this time that the entire Lycus Valley is converted. The Lycus Valley probably doesn't mean anything to you, but it's the area in which all the churches of Revelation are found. So when the seven letters are written to the churches, in the beginning of Revelation, these churches are in the Lycus Valley, and they were probably all evangelized during this time and created. You know, from... From Paul speaking the truth and creating a church, he's come in, he's planted a church, and out of that church, people go out and plant other churches. And this is the extension of God's kingdom. This is why establishing churches that extend God's kingdom cannot ever be negotiable in our mission statement. There is no plan B. It is the place where God's sanctification occurs. It is the one thing that is the bride of Christ. And as we establish churches, it's the place where people can actually grow and be nurtured. Just because someone gives lip service to Jesus, we so often think of conversion as like that. Oh, somebody prayed a prayer. Conversion rarely, if ever, is like that. It's so much more of a process, a process of coming to Jesus and beginning to consider him and, and starting to move closer to him and then starting really to worship with him and being drawn in and falling more and more in love with him. And we need a place to facilitate that. A place that does facilitate that is the church. It's a place where the story is continually preached, which shapes your story. It's a place where you're nourished on the blood and body of Jesus and you're baptized into his name. And it's the place where we hold one another accountable. That's what makes it utterly unique. Oh, you, you can go to all kinds of things, Bible studies or prayer meetings, but there's only one place where those three things come together, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. It's why we essential that we participate, that we hold it as priority, and that we continue to maintain that nothing competes with it. But truly, that we are committed to it as plan A in the establishment of God's kingdom. Let's pray for His grace in that. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your church. We know we are not what we should be. We pray that You would increasingly make us beautiful. We thank you for your commitment to this and thank you that you have laid out a path for us to tread that will bring you more glory. We pray that you would help us to tread it faithfully and that you would receive much glory and honor. We ask that you would nourish us now as we approach your table in the name of Christ. Amen.